Welcome to the House of Lou podcast. I'm your host, Veronica Theodoro. Today, we're talking about native gardens and landscapes. Is it just me, or do you also feel like the topic of native plants is growing in popularity? Well, today we have two local experts here to talk to us about natives and why this is such an important topic. First up is Shannon Callahan. Shannon is an outreach specialist at Bring Conservation Home, a local nonprofit that provides on-site advice to private landowners about how they can restore native plant and animal habitats to their property. She's worked for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, the Missouri Department of Conservation, and at the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. Landscape designer Susie Vanderreet is the owner of St. Louis Native Plants, where she offers consultations, landscape design, and education about native species through talks, presentations, and tours. They're here to talk about why we should all care more about native flowers, shrubs, and trees. But first, some news from the four corners of the house. This episode of House of Lou is sponsored by St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. I've been moving some furniture around my house lately. I own an antique secretary that I want to convert into a bar. For the last, I don't know how many years, it's been on my second floor gathering dust, and I just want to find a better use for it. And I recently called Sue Wheeler, um, who came over to talk with me about refinishing the piece. And so we've decided that she's going to strip it, sand it, and we're going to come up with a custom stain for it. And I'm so excited about this. Um, I'm also adding antique mirror behind the shelves and um, a reader, actually, a reader from my newsletter wrote to me suggesting that I call Dave at County Glass on Manchester. Thank you so much, Susan, for that recommendation. I love it when my readers can give me insight on who to call for my particular projects at home. So if you subscribe to my email newsletter, you probably know that I have a desire to rebuild the iron awning above my front door. Like a lot of old St. Louis houses, a few of the original architectural elements have been stripped from the house over the years. And I really feel like that this house needs its awning back. So my mission is to have that in place by May of this year. But my husband reminded me that there's no point in moving forward on that project until we repair and waterproof the tile work on the front porch so that it doesn't keep cracking and buckling. So the awning is on hiatus for a little bit. And that's just the way things go with old houses. You think you've got a plan and then you realize that you're about one or two steps ahead of yourself. I'll be posting pictures of the porch, the secretary, and eventually the awning in my newsletter and on social media. And now on to today's interviews. My first guest today is Shannon Callahan, an outreach specialist at Bring Conservation Home. Thank you, Shannon, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. This is so exciting. For those listeners who may not be familiar with your organization, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so Bring Conservation Home is a program through the St. Louis Audubon Society. And uh, BCH, Bring Conservation Home, was founded about 11 years ago, back in 2012, with the goal of offering guidance and expertise to homeowners and how to convert their traditional landscaping to native landscaping using native plants. Um, so over the last decade, it's evolved to a little bit more than that, but that's really our, our fundamental mission uh, at its core. Now, is that a national organization or is that a St. Louis organization? I'm proud to say this is St. Louis local. Um, awesome. Audubon obviously is a national organization with local city chapters. And there are other programs similar to BCH elsewhere, but um, our St. Louis chapter here for Conservation Home is unique in its name, its founding, and our, our 
reach within the region. And I'm proud to say that we've actually helped other ones start elsewhere. And I know that your focus is on native and invasive plant management. What does that mean? First of all, educating people on invasive plants. So many people aren't aware of the plants in their yard. You're not taught plant ID uh, as part of your general education, like in, in high school. So a large part of what I do is show up to people's property and just walk them through what they already have. And often they're surprised to find that they actually have a great number of invasive species on their property. What I mean by invasive species is a non-native plant, so not from North America, that is aggressive to the point where it actually outcompetes and is detrimental to the surrounding environment. So it's going to outcompete our native plants and keep them at bay. Um, and why that's really a problem is our native insects can't eat them. They can't eat them. And so our insects are dwindling and populations are declining. And I mean, you go up the food chain that then affects the things that eat the insects. So um, that's step number one is tackling invasive species and then replacing those invasive species with helpful native plants. So that's really what we focus on. Can anybody pick up the phone or send you an email and ask to be put on your schedule? Yeah, for sure. Um, even people who don't own their own property, if you're a renter or you're interested in just container gardening, like, you know, pots out on a balcony, we're able to tailor our consultation to anyone like that. So you go to our website. We unfortunately are very popular and have about a six-month wait list, which we're hoping to get down as capacity grows, but that's just where we're at currently. And yeah, we are able to come out and do a very in-depth consultation on site and then send a very in-depth report uh, in response to that. And is that, is there a cost to that? So yes and no. There is a sliding fee scale, which is new as of this year, and we suggest an $80 donation. That's kind of like the true cost of our consultation. But we really accept whatever is comfortable for you. So if less is what you can do or nothing is what you know you can do at that moment, we have supplemental funding through Department of Conservation, through various native plant growers in the area that um, are able to cover the difference. And what we're finding with this new sliding fee scale we've introduced is actually most people are overpaying on the $80. Oh. We're receiving a lot of $100 plus donations, nice. um, which is covering where, you know, maybe people are donating less. And for those listeners who may not be familiar with native landscapes and native gardens, why is it an important topic or subject matter? So like I mentioned earlier with invasive species, it all boils down to the food chain. So our native insects and therefore our native pollinators can't use non-native plants. So People at some point in the last you know, couple centuries determined that this very European-looking traditional landscaping is the social norm, is like the standard. And so we have all these non-native plants from Europe and Asia that aren't eaten by insects, which most people maybe hear and think, okay, that's a good thing, right? My plants aren't full of holes. But when it's not being eaten, it's not being used, it's not supporting wildlife. Um, and it's really separating that area, that urban area, from the habitat in the area. And so if you're not having native insects, don't have the things that eat the insects, birds, mm -hmm. specifically chicks. Adult birds often can eat seeds and other sources of food, but chicks really do need caterpillars, that, that high protein caterpillar to eat. And I have um, kind of a, an interesting little like study that was done oh, that I yes. think you might find Tell interesting us, here. So um, I'm going to be referring to Dr. Doug Tallamy quite a bit during this, likely. Okay. And he is an ecologist, entomologist out of Delaware, who has done just a ton of research on how native landscaping really does impact wildlife populations. So he looked at a nest of chickadees in his yard. And chickadees are a very small songbird. Oh, okay. Thank you. For that. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> full disclosure. I work for Audubon. I know next to nothing about birds. I'm a plant person. Um, so chickadees are very small. They're like about a third of an ounce weight-wise, so very, very small. So when they're raising a nest, both parents help in feeding the chicks, and they take turns leaving the nest to go get a caterpillar every one to three minutes. They bring back a single caterpillar. And they do that from about 6 a.m. to about 8 p.m. on average for 16 to 18 days. So that's a total of about 350 to 570 caterpillars per day, depending on how many chicks they have. So in total, to raise a single nest of chickadees, 
you're looking at around 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars. And that's one nest of chickadees. So think about larger birds, right? your blue jays, your cardinals, your woodpeckers. So if you don't have those native caterpillars, what are they eating? They're not. Kind of what it boils down to is supporting the food chain, the food web, and supporting wildlife. But it really does go beyond that. Um, you can solve a lot of stormwater problems or erosion problems in your yard using native plants. That absorb the runoff. Yeah, they absorb runoff. They hold soil in place. I know I live in South City. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to that, like, very small, very steep South right. City hill that is so typical of those yes. neighborhoods. Um, erosion can be a really big problem. And mowing that hill is insane to try to push a lawnmower up and down. Um, so converting that to some kind of native landscaping where you don't have to mow, but it's holding soil in place and it's it's capturing rainwater runoff. And, and that's what they refer to as rewilding. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a way, I've I've seen that term banned. Yeah, out. rewild. There's so many different buzzwords around like mm -hmm. native landscaping. Rewilding, I think, kind of has this connotation of like the pocket prairie, the very yeah. um wild looking. Yes. And I say this with love, this is what my own front yard looks like. Um, you know, four foot tall wildflowers, and it looks more wild, more natural. Right. Um, but there are definitely ways, and I'm sure we can talk about this more, where it looks more intentional. It looks more like a traditional suburban landscape, but still using native species and still accomplishing those same goals. And what would one use to achieve that particular look? Is that ground cover? When someone asks us for um, a tidier look um, or, you know, they don't want to, I like to joke, be that house on the block, right? right. I am that, that house, house on the block. I recommend there are certain species like different wildflowers that are going to max out maybe height. They're not going to get, so, so many of our prairie plants can be five plus feet tall. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'm recommending plants that maybe stay around three feet. They grow kind of bushier rather than scraggly. Mm -hmm. um, they're less likely to spread. Many of our native wildflowers will readily self-seed into an area, which is fantastic if that's what you're prepared for. But if you're going for a more traditional suburban right. look there there is you know something to be said about being able to plant something and it stays there mm -hmm. um or, or there's plenty of native shrubs where a lot of what we're doing is offering recommendations to replace honeysuckle or burning bush or non-invasive but not native boxwoods and um, yew shrubs or japanese maples and things like that so it's incredible that you can get the look of a boxwood for example by using a native yeah. plant. Yeah. There's a species, a shrubby St. John's wort, okay. which is a shrub that is our go-to recommendation specifically for a boxwood lookalike. Um, it's not evergreen like a boxwood, but it does leaf out very early and stay green very late compared to our other deciduous shrubs. It has a very similar look. Um, and I'd argue a actually much better look because they have these really huge, beautiful flowers. And I love to tell the story about I was on a site visit and two houses away, a neighbor of this person had a mass planting of shrubby St. John's wort, and it was in bloom. From two houses away, I could hear the buzz. Oh, my God. That's how many pollinators were on this mass of shrubs. And it was just the perfect example to be showing the steward that I was talking to at, the, at that time. Like, hey, this is why we're doing it. Like, you can hear all the pollinators from over there. I'd be curious to know what, what you hear on these site visits from... Um, from homeowners, gardeners, what surprises them? What questions do they have? What are their worries or their concerns? Um, anything come to mind? Yeah, for sure. I will say that I hear the same things over and over, and yet I never have the same visit twice. It's kind of interesting. So I hear a lot of the same worries or concerns, but everyone is coming from a different perspective. So, so many people reach out to us because they're bird watchers and they kind they ask themselves, well, how do I get more birds in my yard? I'm tired of just seeing cardinals and robins and right. doves. Um, and through that research, they find, oh, I need caterpillars. And that's how they find us. Um, and so they they come to us from like a support wildlife perspective, which is great. And then there are other people who they live further out near like Wildwood or Chesterfield and 
all their landscaping is being eaten by deer. <laughs> oh, right. Um, and so Big they problem. have us, yeah, so they have us come out. And unfortunately for that one, we don't have a magic answer for how to, you know, deer are everywhere. But mm -hmm. um, they kind of reach to us, they reach us from that perspective. We have people who reach out because they can't get anything to grow in their very shady yard. Erosion and stormwater problems are another big reason people reach out. Something else is MSD, the a sanitation department, right. has a small grant program called Project Clear. Okay, That right. um, is an incentive program to have people convert areas of their property to native landscaping oh, to increase stormwater usage on your own property. So a lot of people find out about that and then reach out to us to try to kind of start that process. Interesting. That can be several thousand dollars worth of reimbursement for them to do this complete rehab of their landscaping. Oh, wow. Incredible. And from what I understand, as you said, you have a six-month wait. Give or take. Give or yeah. take <laughs> or so. And um, this year, you've had about 155 site visits. Yes. Is that pretty average for you? Or? Yeah. So that's... Um, this year was a bit of a transition year. I'm I am new as of March. This there's definitely a learning curve for myself taking on a lot of these site visits. About last year, I think they did about 180 or so. Uh, the year before that was again about 150. Um, pandemic year actually reached much higher because they were doing virtual visits. Oh, um, that's not something we're planning on doing anytime soon. It's just, it really, we do need to be on site and be able to walk around and, and figure out sure. sun conditions and everything. But um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely about 150 plus site visits a year. Do you find that there's a particular neighborhood or area of St. Louis where you get a majority of your phone calls or emails? Yeah. Or yeah, so we're definitely the top three zip codes, I would say, are Webster Groves, Kirkwood, U-City. Okay. Um, those are very popular. We're very popular there. Um, South City, especially like Tower Grove area, we're very present there, which is great. Um, something we're really proud of is actually this year we've done a lot more site visits up in like North City, and we call those Tier 1 areas. Tier 1 is yeah. uh, a partnership with Department of Conservation, MDC, that we've kind of both identify these areas of the St. Louis metro area that are being underserved both by MDC and by our own program. And so we developed this partnership with MDC that they are covering the fees entirely for these tier one areas, um, which is a lot of North City, South City that are, like I said, traditionally underserved by these programs. So completely free, no donation even suggested or expected for these areas. And you get a BCH consultation. So in past years, it's ranged from two visits in tier one areas up to like i think the most was seven um in past years this year we did 17 and how are you getting the word out yeah so this year with the 17 site visits we do really have to credit the city of jennings okay we they came up with this amazing curb appeal program contest that they oh partnered, that. yeah they partnered with mdc and bch and a couple other entities and provided free plants to people who signed up for this program. And part of it was a BCH consultation and report that we went really in depth over the different species they were eligible for. And we helped kind of curate the collection of, oh, you have a sunny yard, you're going to get this set of species, or you have a very shady yard, you're going to get a different set of species because you can't just expect the shade plants to work well in the sun yard. Right. And we're also in the process of forming a partnership to get free canopy trees out to tier one areas as well oh, to okay. restore that missing canopy layer. And what does the canopy tree provide other than shade? Is that is that the reason why you want that particular type of tree out? I mean, part of it, you think about um, how much you rely on shade in the summer, yes, especially, especially in St. Louis. Yeah. Um, you know, I like to equate to, I used to live in the Tower Grove neighborhood and walking my dog in the summer with all those huge trees was no problem. I enjoyed doing that. I've since moved to a different neighborhood in South City where that canopy tree layer is not there. And I will not walk my dogs in the summer while the sun's up. Um, there's a substantial, it's called the heat island effect, but there's a oh, substantial okay. temperature difference when you're missing that canopy layer. So what we found is a lot of these tier one areas, people maybe can't afford to take care of these large canopy trees over the years. They've just been removed in mass 
you're just missing an entire canopy layer. And that's important for wildlife. Birds need a variety of canopy layers. So we always encourage people to have all four canopy layers, ground, shrubs, understory trees, large canopy trees. Yes. So if we can try to get them in the hands of people for free mm-hmm. and help them with the, the guidance of where to plant them, how to take care of them, we're happy to do that. Sounds like an incredible program. Yeah. What are some of the events that your organization has planned for 2024? Yeah. So every year we do a spring series, which is it's been growing and growing every single year. It just no pun intended. Yeah. Right. Um, It just gets bigger every single year. So it's um, a series of webinars followed by an in-person event, usually a plant sale with uh, a series of speakers in person. And last year we had, I don't have those numbers directly in front of me, but last year we had, I want to say about 7,000 people view our webinars because they're through the library system. Oh, okay. Um, And then they cover these webinars, they're different each year, but they cover a range of topics from like very introductory level, hey, here's why native plants matter, Mm -hmm. to very in-depth, you know, container gardening with native plants or a panel of gardeners and what they do at their own house or edible native plants. So really any kind of interest you can can access through these webinars, which we are saving and uploading on our YouTube channel. Oh, So you, those are accessible from previous years. And then, like I said, in-person plant sale, we're really all about putting plants in, in someone's hand. hand. Yeah. yeah. So if you can, if you can come and learn about plants and then take some home and actually plant them, that's like just the best. What advice would you give to someone who's interested in exploring native gardening in their own home how should they aside from calling you or emailing you and getting on that wait list what can they do first of all do your research on where to get native plants in the st louis area we are so incredibly lucky in st louis i'm not sure people are aware of this we're kind of a hub for native plants oh Um, in the country yeah i'm not gonna go out and say that we're number one or anything Mm -hmm. but we um coming myself coming from not st louis Mm -hmm. um and Studying this for years, I can say, like, this is a really hot spot for this kind of activity. So we have a lot of native plant specific nurseries in St. Louis. So I encourage you to go and get plants from a local grower, not a big box store like a home improvement store, but a local native plant grower. And those who those are, are um, we list them on our website and our yeah. partners and everything. But go get a plant and try it. Don't be afraid to fail because... I do this for a living and I can't tell you how many plants I've killed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about finding the right fit for your environment. And that's part of what BCH is here to do. But also it's about so many different variables that are sometimes just unforeseen. So it's about experimentation. Um, it's about patience. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun when things work. And do you have any personal insight into why St. Louis is, as you said, a bit of a hub for native gardening. You know, I've been asked that so many times. I really don't. Um, I think just there with BCH being over a decade old, that's kind of, that was riding the very early waves. And so I think it's just been very well established with our various municipalities. You City in Bloom is a very well established. Yes, so that. I, I wish I had a better answer. I'm happy that it's, it's great. Case, but yeah, it's incredible. Great win for St. Louis. Yeah, for sure. I understand that there's, a mental health component to living in an area with a lot of green space. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, there's a lot of research coming out recently that shows a direct correlation between high quality natural area and green space and better mental health and lower stress levels. So that's just another benefit to increased native landscaping. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. So fun. We'll be right back. Join your St. Louis Symphony Orchestra and music director Stefan Deneve on February 2nd as international sensation and St. Louis favorite violinist Augustin Hadlick returns for Samuel Barber's Lyrical Violin Concerto. Then discover pioneer composer Florence Pierce's Third Symphony that blends passion with great tunes and danceable rhythms on February 2nd at UMSL's Two Hill Performing Arts Center. Buy your tickets today at slso.org. And now for our next guest, Susie Vanderiet of St. Louis Native Plants. Welcome to the studio. Thanks, Veronica. I'm interested to know when and how you became interested in Native Gardens. So uh, in 2009, I purchased my first home. 
And uh, when I first moved in there, I was looking at the landscape, which is basically turf grass and some boxwood shrubs and then some live forevers were basically the only plants that were there and then a bunch of weeds, basically. And uh, I was trying to figure out from asking friends and family kind of what do I do with this? How do I take care of this? And what else can I put here? And a lot of the response that I got was uh, involved, you know, putting fertilizers down or lots of watering or just lots of maintenance. And, um, you know, I'm kind of a skeptical person by nature. And so I, you know, consulted Google and a quick Google search of, you know, uh, environmentally friendly or eco-friendly plants in Missouri yielded the result of Missouri native plants. And so that was how I originally stumbled on it. And I really, what drew me to it was that they seemed like a more environmentally friendly plant, that they could exist with our climate conditions and um, that they didn't need all of this extra water or fertilizing or, you know, weed killer or different things like that. They just didn't need that sort of treatment. And so were you a gardener? Before you purchase the house? Not necessarily. Um, I do. I guess it kind of runs in my veins a little bit. My grandpa actually on my mom's side worked at Missouri Botanical Gardens as their floriculturist for 60 plus years, basically until he passed away. And so kind of we've had a lot of exposure to it and my family gardened a fair amount uh, in different ways. But uh, I had not really done a whole lot myself at that point. Wow. And so what was that journey like for you? How did you go about that process of creating a native garden? It was a lot of fun. So uh, I just did I did a lot of digging online and I consulted a lot of like any little rabbit hole that I would get led to, I would go down. And so, you know, when I first stumbled across native plants, there were some resources through uh, Missouri Department of Conservation that I came across. And so I would, you know, kind of look at those a little bit and they would give a little bit of guidance on placement and what types of plants to use for like a bird garden. Uh, And then I reached out to the Shaw Nature Reserve. Scott Woodbury was working out there still at that time. And um, I asked him, you know, about their native plant classes, which were only offered during the day at that time. And I had a full time job. It's like, okay, so basically I need to wait until I'm retired to be able to get into this and learn more about this. And so then he pointed me in the direction of um, the St. Louis Audubon Society with their Bring Conservation Home program because uh, he thought that if I got involved as a habitat advisor with them, I could learn a lot about native plants specifically. And so I dove into that and learned. It was online. It was through Grow Native's website. They have a lot of information there, too, through the Shaw Nature Reserve, just any place that I could find it. And so then when did you launch your business? Uh, officially in 2014. The business is meant to consult, you do landscape design work, and also education, correct? correct? How has that gone for you so far? Do you, are people interested in learning about Native Gardens? It's been, yes, uh, it's been a lot of fun. People are really on this bandwagon right now. It seems like people are really just continually getting more and more excited about native plants. Most of the people who seek me out, I think somewhat because of my what's in my business name, St. Louis Native Plants, when people are also doing things like Google searching, you know, if they're looking specifically for native plants in St. Louis, that they can stumble across me. So a lot of the people that come to me are already very interested in having native plants uh, as their total landscape or as part of their landscape. But I think even more um, gardeners are who weren't maybe is into that at first, are starting to get a little more into it just because, you know, we have these flooding events. We have these extreme drought events. Um, We're hearing in the news things about, um, you know, insects or songbirds disappearing and, you know, just all of these different things that are coming up. And native plants really offer a way to uh, feel like we can make a difference just with our yard. And so when you're meeting a client for the first time, Can you walk us a little bit through that process? Sure. So I really tailor my appointments with clients to whatever they're hoping to gain from it. So uh, if somebody contacts me and say that they're kind of a do-it-yourself kind of client, then I would go out there. I would meet with them for an hour or more if they asked me to do so. And we would walk their site. We would look at everything. We'd talk about their ideals. We look at what their site conditions are. So does the area hold much moisture or is it kind of high and dry? Is it fully exposed in the sun or is it something that gets more shade? We would look at all of those things together. And then we would talk about, like I said, their ideals. Uh, You know, are they trying to attract more pollinators? Are they trying to attract more birds? Are they trying to deal with some sort of stormwater management? 
you know, just different things like that. And so we, we talk about the problems that they might be having. And then uh, we will talk about how to best get rid of the existing vegetation, if there is any to get rid of. Uh, that's a very important first step. And then we would talk about specific plant species that might be ideal for those site conditions and to help work with their ideals. Uh, if they really want to lay everything out themselves, we also might talk about how to lay them out in a way that is aesthetically pleasing for them, for people walking by. Um, we definitely want to make sure that it's functional, you know, so that it's not, you know, people are walking past the bed and they're getting hit in the face with, you know, right. a sunflower or something like that. We want to make sure that everything is in line with that. So that's pretty much what we talk through. Um, and then, you know, if there's any other coaching that they need, you know, we kind of address that at that time. Is there a particular look or aesthetic that St. Louis gardeners tend to want over others? Or are you seeing a range of interests? I would say that there is a range, but generally speaking, most people don't want to be spending a ton of time maintaining their landscape. And so that actually guides how the garden looks a little bit because um, certain types of gardens, for instance, gardens that include uh, native plants that are prolific self-seeders, they are going to need more maintenance and they might be a little bit harder or trickier to maintain than, you know, a garden that features plants that are more clump forming or mound forming and don't spread quite as aggressively by seed. And so uh, there's just different ways, I think, to work with that. But I think generally speaking, people want something that looks like it's an intentional garden uh, so that it doesn't upset their neighbors right. and also so that it's pleasant for them to look at. It depends on the size. It depends on the scope. Right. You know, so sometimes people are like, yeah, I want, I want a wild garden. I want a prairie. So in that case, you know, the approach is a little bit different. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there is a misconception around native gardens that they are all wild in appearance, right? But I think you can have a lot of different um, elements, such as a water garden, a rock garden, a perennial garden, et cetera. Um, I suppose it's just a matter of looking at various uh, native gardens and seeing what appeals to you. Absolutely. How about for someone who wants an orderly, symmetrical looking garden, right? Like I think a lot of people are interested in that French garden look. Is that possible to achieve with native plants? Definitely. So I, I think that, and that's, you know, when we talk about using things that are mound forming or clump forming plants instead of things that are going to be prolific self-seeders, I think that's one way to do that. We can incorporate some other design guidelines or principles too to make that happen. Incorporating borders is a really big thing that you hear across anybody yes. that's talking about native garden design. You always want borders. You know, you can even alternate between some low-growing ground cover borders that will be kind of give you a little bit of variety, but still give you that sort of finished look and something right. that's very intentional. A lot of people talk about using turf grass as borders too to kind of keep things in that realm. Um, and we also uh, just specific plant species, I think, lend themselves to being a little more just organized looking. Uh, we do have a sprinkling of plants from our palette that are evergreen or semi evergreen. So I think including things like that also helps to bring a little bit more of that look, which always tends to appeal to people. Everybody wants to see green in the wintertime, right. too. So. Right. Um, and I think that people also think that native gardens are low maintenance across the board. And I know that ground covers in particular can be a low maintenance plant to care for. Is that true about the low maintenance aspect of, of native gardens or is there a range? It depends. So there's definitely a range. Um, ground covers really help to make uh, native gardens, I think, a, a bit more low maintenance because, you know, just one simple example of that is if you have, um, you know, where you would normally be putting down mulch between plants uh, and it would give it kind of that finished look and it'll help to suppress weeds, it'll help to protect the soil and keep some of that moisture and keep the ground from drying and cracking. Ground covers can do the same thing. And so they can help to suppress weeds because they take up that valuable soil real estate area that weeds would otherwise make their way into. Um, they will keep the ground from drying and cracking. 
Um, and, and they also will just give, again, kind of an organized look uh, if you apply them. And so I think that that is one way to make things lower maintenance. But certainly if you have an abundance of, you know, diversity of plants and, you know, you just plunk hundreds of plants in one small space together and they're self-seeders and, you know, that's going to be a lot more maintenance for somebody. And so you really just have to kind of balance that with, you know, if somebody wants something lower maintenance, maybe a larger grouping of plantings or multiple larger groupings, mass plantings of one species of plant is going to help with that too. And can gardeners um, phase in the native landscapes and the native uh, plants and shrubs, or is it something that has to happen all at once? I typically encourage people to dream big and start small. So I think that it's a wonderful thing if somebody, you know, if somebody says, okay, so I've got a landscape full of boxwoods, you know, and hostas and things like that, but I have these gaps between my plants where I would like to put natives. And so you can just take maybe one or two species of natives and kind of fill in those gaps with just some natives that work well in that site, Um, you know, because not everybody wants a fully native landscape. And so, and that's okay. Um, everybody's got their personal preference of what they want. And so I recently had a client where I, I, you know, they wanted the borders to be filled up or otherwise would have been mulched. And so I gave them a lot of low growing ground covers for their borders. But then they also did have a number of boxwoods where they wanted some gaps filled in with native plants. And so while their overall plan didn't look like they had a ton of species being added in, they did have some really valuable um, plant material that was being added in there for pollinators and, and abundance of wildlife. So really can make a big difference, even just with a small amount. I love that. That is so cool. What do you hear from your clients, uh, would you say, after they go through this process with you? Something that surprises them or that caught them off guard about, you know, you know, the nature of native gardens? You know, I think um, sometimes people are surprised at um, how quickly things will start to show up. You know, Dave Tilka, I've heard him say frequently, if you build it, they will come. And so, um, you know, if you plant it, they will come. And and if you plant just one species, you know, maybe a few milkweed, uh, different things like that, you know, it's amazing how quick you start to see wildlife come back. And so, you know, I've I've had a number of clients who have expressed that, that they're just elated at this, you know, and delighted at, at the fact that they just put in a few of these plants. And then the next year they start seeing things like monarch butterflies showing up more, you know, in plentitudes. And, um, you know, they start seeing more different types of bees showing up and just, you know, birds coming to their garden. And it really doesn't take that long for it to happen. And can you talk a little bit about why, why is it so important that we have these uh, butterflies showing up, bees showing up into these environments? Why, why is that important? You know, this is always a fun question for me because my immediate response now is because they're fun to look at. (laughs) But I know that there's, you know, that's not necessarily the sell for everybody. And so, um, you know, I I think that when we're using and applying these native plants in our landscapes, these are things that have evolved along with our climate. And so they also have evolved along with our local ecosystems, which means that um, when we have these, you know, butterflies that when they're in their larval form or as caterpillars will actually be feeding on these plants, um, will have these bees, you know, that are going to be pollinating these plants. And, uh, but we have all of these other invertebrates that show up too, like mantises, we, have, you know, beetles showing up, we have moths and all of these different things. And ultimately this all, you know, is incorporated into the food web. So the more that we start seeing all of these different things, you know, these smaller beings, we also start seeing birds showing up more. And so Songbirds are are very reliant upon insects for food. Um, they also will feed on the seed heads of these spent flowers. They'll feed on berries and different fruits from native plants, but they really need those insects for rearing their young. So it, it's just, it's so important to have plants that bugs are going to be visiting so that we can then in turn also have things like songbirds being supported. And that works, you know, across the whole web. Where can St. Louisans go to look at native gardens and admire native gardens in the area? Anywhere in particular? My favorite place to refer people, I would say, is actually not necessarily a place, but more garden tours. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because people can see 
how these things are behaving in people's yards and how people are applying these in different ways in their yards and how they're working, how they're not working. They could talk with the homeowners or yard owners to see um, kind of what's been their biggest challenge, all those different things. Um, so we have some really excellent tours where that can happen uh, during the summertime. Usually we have um, the native plant garden tour that happens in the summertime. We have uh, the sustainable backyard tour, which that network usually features a lot of native plant gardens. And so that's also an excellent way as far as places to visit without getting too far into the weeds, so to speak. Um, the Shaw Nature Reserve, uh, the Whitmire Wildflower Garden specifically is a beautiful example. I mean, just shining example of native design and landscaping. It's just, it's gorgeous. And there's, you know, there's so many other places that are popping up right now. It's almost hard to keep track of it. And I get excited when I see them. Um, like there's a, a place that I drive past frequently that uh, is Quarrelsome Coffee, a new little coffee shop that has opened up, I guess, I think in the last year or so. And they have this like little strip of land that I don't know if it belongs to them or if it belongs to the neighbor, the adjacent neighborhood, uh, where there's a bunch of native plants that got planted as Quarrelsome Coffee opened. Okay. So I think maybe it's associated with them, but it's just this small pocket of land that has these beautiful plants blooming, you know, kind of across the growing season, different things, you know, we're picking up and it just got planted in the last year. And so um, I think that there's more places that are implementing them in parking lots as kind of bioswale, like rain catchment sort of systems. Yes. You know, so there's like the Missouri Botanical Garden. You don't even have to go actually into the garden. You can visit their, you know, parking lots, basically. Exactly. So um, there's a lot of different places, I think, to see them. Where would you say are some of the best places to buy native plants? I would say don't limit it to the to these suggestions. I think that, again, this is kind of like what I was just talking about, where there's more places, uh, more suppliers popping up over time and more places are starting to incorporate native plants into their retail. I would say Greenscape Gardens is definitely one of my favorites. Um, they're, they have an abundance uh, in the retail center for natives. And Sue Leahy has done a lovely job of stocking that up and keeping that supplied. I also really like Papillon Perennials, which uh, the owner, Kathy Pauly, um, she uh, does not have a brick and mortar location, but she is somebody who you can place orders with and you can actually do pick up with her. And she shows up to a number of plant sale events, too. So that's Papillon Perennials. Um, Missouri Wildflower Nursery, uh, they have a, an amazing selection. They will actually ship orders um, directly to you that you place online. You can also find them at different plant sale events, too. Um, locally, or you can have a nice little road trip out to their location. Um, Forest Keeling uh, Nursery is also a really great place for shrubs and trees, and they're located in Ellsbury, Missouri. And uh, another place locally that I'd want to give a shout out to uh, would be um, Forest Relief, which they operate kind of seasonally, but they're located out at Creefcore Park, and they are more of a place for like trees, primarily maybe shrubs a, a bit too, oh, okay. but uh, native trees. And uh, and they're also they contribute. Uh, broadly to um, community kind of efforts to uh, actually get trees planted in areas that maybe are underserved. Um, and so uh, they don't want anybody to be limited on their ability to have trees based off of their income. And so they're really a great organization to support. And I would say Pure Air Native would be another one, especially if you're looking for seeds, um, you know, and you don't necessarily want to start from live plants. That would be a, a really viable option, too. These are incredible recommendations, some of which I never heard of. So thank you for that. Let's talk about magnolia trees. I know that they're a favorite among St. Louisans. I actually bought three magnolias last year. Was that a good choice to make if I'm trying to be environmentally minded? So I think if you're trying to be environmentally conscientious in that way, that I would say that most magnolias that are planted around here are not native, but I wouldn't you know, consider, or I don't know any of them to be considered invasive as far as non-natives go. We do actually have a uh, native magnolia tree to the state of Missouri. Not many people plant them because the flowers are kind of funky looking. They don't look anything like a saucer magnolia or star or sweet bay magnolia's flowers. Uh, and what you do tend to see with um, the non-native magnolias is you will actually frequently see um, beetles on the flowers or visiting the flowers as pollinators of those flowers. And so while they're not necessarily, uh, they may not provide quite as much in the realm of, you know, something that maybe a native tree would supply, depending on what kind of um, native tree you had, especially if it was something like an oak. But uh, they are not, they're not an invasive species, like I said, as I'm aware, and they're not harming uh, anything by being there. Okay. So You can have non-native plants, trees, shrubs 
in your garden and they may not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're invasive species. Is that correct? Definitely. Yes. Okay. And so how do you determine, I guess that's just through research and knowing and talking to experts, et cetera. Do you know, so that's an interesting question. Um, There may be some exact criteria that has to line up in such a way for something to be called invasive. Um, I will say that sometimes the term invasive gets thrown at natives, which is not something that conservationists would use. You know, typically the the term that would be applied to a native plant that maybe is acting somewhat invasive in its behavior would be aggressive is usually how people would refer to that, Um, but not invasive because invasive is something that's only applied to something that is a non-native species and is invading and suppressing Uh, growth of surrounding plants. And so, like I said, I'm not sure if there's actually a particular line kind of or number that you would be looking for to to call something or classify something as an invasive species. But um, from what I understand, uh, invasive species is going to be a non-native species going to be something that spreads somewhat uncontrollably um, and invades uh, surrounding habitat and suppresses native plants from actually being able to grow. And so then native plants can act aggressively. Yes, they can. Oh, okay. And that would involve some of the actions that you just described, right? Yeah, so they could they could they could find their way into surrounding gardens or landscapes. They could possibly make it harder for other plants to grow, even other native plants. And so, you know, even in like in conservation of forests, you'll see that there will be thinning even of some native trees because even, you know, where you have an area where there's a bunch of native trees growing, if you have too much of that uh happening, they're going to suppress other growth from happening. And so just in the, by the nature of how things grow, um, they're going to be shading out the ground. And so the more that the ground is shaded, it's going to make, make it harder or more difficult for other plant species to be able to reach towards the sunlight. And so they can definitely do that. And that's where, you know, it, it makes sense to con- really carefully consider plant species. You know, if somebody tells me I don't want something high maintenance and I don't want something that's going to jump all over my yard, that right there rules out a lot a number of plant species, um, you know, just because I don't want to give somebody a maintenance nightmare. Right, right. It sounds like there's just so much to know and learn and understand about gardens and and the way we interact with them. And now I'd like to start with our round of lightning questions. This is always a fun one. What is your favorite native flower? It's a very tough one. Depends on what's in bloom. Uh, but I'm going to go with Rattlesnake Master, whose botanical name is Eryngium yuccifolium. What's a non-native flower or plant that everyone thinks is native to our region? Butterfly bush. Prettiest native tree to plant in a south-facing front yard? For a small yard, I'd say a redbud or Circus canadensis. Or for a large yard, I would say an oak tree, maybe a chinkapin oak. Most harmful non-native plant tree flower in our area? Uh, There's some rivals there, but I would say the Japanese uh, bush honeysuckle would probably be at the top. Native gardens make me feel? Joy. When I see a landscape or garden converted from non-native to native, the first thing that comes to mind is? The patchwork is coming together to be a quilt for wildlife. A good book to read or learn about native landscapes. Tough one, but I'm going to say as a starting point, anything by Doug Tallamy. Your favorite garden insect. Let's go with the uh, great black wasp. If you had room to plant more native flowers, which one would you choose? Oh, if I had more room, I would plant trees, lots and lots of oak trees or something like that. Uh, Trees. St. Louis is a great place to learn to garden because... St. Louis Audubon Society and St. Louis Wild Ones especially are very supportive. Thank you, Susie. This was wonderful. I appreciate all of the information and insight. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for V's Views. I love to learn. I think anyone who knows me knows how much I am curious about the world around me. And I'm thinking about taking some classes this year. And I wanted to highlight three that have caught my interest. The first is Orchid Show Photography at Missouri Botanical Garden on February the 15th from 
from 5.30 to 8 p.m. All levels of experience are welcome, and you would get rare access to the Orchid Show to take photos with professional guidance. This seems like something really great for both beginners and those of us who want to take our photo skills one step forward. The next class on my list is Darning and Mending at Perennial. And if you're not familiar with Perennial, this is a local nonprofit that offers educational programming in creative reuse and sells handmade DIY kits and tools for reuse projects. I took a class there last year and I had a great experience. And this one is all about learning how to repair holes in woven and knit garments using traditional mending and darning techniques. It's scheduled for January 20th from 10 a.m. to 12.30. And, you know, I think we're just going to all sit around and we'll be provided with holy sample swatches that we can practice on and um, improve our skills so that when our clothes tire out a bit, we don't throw them out necessarily, but we mend them and we try to keep them in our closet rotation. And lastly, there's a tour at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation on January 20th from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. that will take visitors inside the Tadao Ando building to learn more about the incredible architecture of that space. We'll learn from Mark Wellen of BSI Constructors, and he will talk about his time working on that building from the ground up alongside the architect and his team. I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting tour, something to think about as you get your year underway. Thank you for listening to The House of Lou. Be sure to follow us and share the episode with your friends. Be in touch with us through my newsletter, Design and Home, at stlmag.com slash newsletters, and follow us on Instagram. We'll see you next time. And just remember, there's so much to see in St. Louis if you know where to look.